Good morning, everybody. Welcome to ASCP's podcast, Our Experience. I'm Chad Wurz, Chief Executive for ASCP, alongside my tag team partner, Tom Hansel of Hansel Health. And we are here on this uh, holiday week, 4th of July week, to talk to Will Hallett. And the description for this particular podcast starts out with Chad fancies himself the quintessential consultant pharmacist. And having worked as a consultant pharmacist my whole career, I do fancy myself a consultant pharmacist and, and like to believe I'm, I was an interesting one when I was doing it full time. But I met Will Hallett and realized that he has a passionate ability to stand up and explain exactly what we as consultant pharmacists do. In fact, one of them, I think, my early good decisions as CEO was having Will come up and speak to the National Minority Quality Forum Summit, where he got to be in front of a bunch of Beltway bureaucrats and Congress people and talk about what we do. Because especially at that time, and maybe a little less now that we've gone through the pandemic, most people don't know what we do. And uh, Will does an awesome job of describing it. So welcome, Will. Thanks for being here. Hey there, Chad. Thank you so much, uh, Tom. Uh, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you guys. Yeah. So let's jump into it, Will. Like, let's go back to your origin story. We like to talk about origin stories to start. How'd you get here? Where'd you come from? <laughs> <laughs> so where did I come from? Born and raised on Long Island. My dad was a funeral director. My mom was a nurse. So I sort of saw life and death uh, every day. Oh, wow. Um, uh, which was pretty interesting. I saw how my dad uh, dealt with people in uh, some of the worst moments of their lives and their loved ones' lives. And I saw my mom, uh, you know, with that compassion. I thought to myself, I think I want to stay on the living side of things. I would prefer <laughs> it if I stayed on this side. But from whatever reason, from a very, very early age, I had this fascination with why and how drugs worked. I can remember my brother saying to me, I was taking an Alka-Seltzer. I was a little kid. I probably shouldn't have been taking an Alka-Seltzer. We know better now. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a kid. I've got an upset stomach. I'm taking an Alka-Seltzer. And he says to me, don't take that too much. It's not going to work after a while. And I started pondering that as like little seven-year-old me, like, hmm, is that really the way that works? Am I going to, you know, you know, like the word tolerance, I had no idea, but that's what's running through my little seven-year-old brain. And that sort of set me down this, this road. Now, my grandfather, my mother's father was a pharmacist and his father before him was a pharmacist. They had come from Italy and they emigrated in the late 1800s. So there was this air of pharmacy uh, that, uh, that was sort of surrounding me and I was always kind of interested came time to choose colleges and uh, saw St. John's University was right, right nearby us and uh, they had a program and I put in for it and was luckily accepted. Best thing that ever, ever happened to me. I had no idea that I would love it as much as I possibly do. Chad, when I tell you that I can't imagine doing anything else with my life, I really mean that. It's been my life's passion to do what I do and to do it in a long-term care environment uh, is made it only better for me. So it's sort of been uh, an interesting road to uh, to becoming a pharmacist. What happened after that? Well, that's that's a longer story too. So, I, so if you guys got a question, please you know jump in. Uh, you know, you, no, Chad, you I know, want to hear the longer story. What happened after you, that? <laughs> you know me well. I'll I'll go on for a bit because you know it, it really is. This is a life's passion, like yours, Chad. You know, and uh, Tom. Uh, you know, even from speaking to you, I can hear it in your voice as well. I love it when I'm talking to some of the younger pharmacists and I hear that passion in their voice. You know, it's like, yes, there we go. Next generation grabbing it, you know, the same way that uh, 
that I did. And I remember people inspiring me from ANCP. Along the way, uh, by some fortune, Chad, I became, uh, and, and Tom, I, I became a, a hospital pharmacist fairly quickly out of school. I worked in a chain for a little bit, went back to some uh, guys that I had uh, done one of my rotations under, begged them for a job in the hospital where I'd done a rotation. They kindly took me back and uh, moved up through the ranks, went to another hospital where at the ripe old age of 26, 27, I found myself director of pharmacy. Stunning. I shouldn't have been there. It was just a confluence of things. Had to learn really fast how to manage a staff, how to, you know, how to hire people, how to, you know, get prepared for uh, surveys like Jayco and, and the whole bit. By 28, 29, I'm looking, say, well, now, now what do I do? Where's the career path? Uh, what do I do? Just go to a bigger hospital? There's got to be some career path. And just about that time, one of the local nursing homes, so local to the hospital, calls up the hospital pharmacy, gets me on the phone and says, hey, listen, we need a consultant pharmacist. Uh, can you know, You've got a staff. Is anybody there? Could they come by and do some work for us part time? I said, well, let me see what this is about. I had no idea. I didn't even know the world of consultant pharmacy existed at that mm-hmm. point. Now, no, no idea of OBRA guidelines, nothing. I go over there and I, I talk to them and it dawned on me fairly quickly that if you were ethical and conscientious and you were willing to take the time to build the bridges with the nurses, with the medical staff, with the administration, man, could you make a difference? There were so many opportunities, simple opportunities to fix things on behalf of this population of people that were so desperately in need. Uh, you know, this was our frail elderly, and they needed somebody to come in, and not as a brilliant clinician, just with some common sense and with a focus on this one particular area, and help them out. Uh, Chad, when I tell you one of the first units that I walked on, uh, there were it was a 50 bed unit, and I remember counting it up. There were 32 people on a long acting benzodiazepine for sleep. Long off the market. It's called Dalmain, Florazepam, long off the market, and it should be off the market. So 32 out of 50 people were on, and I'm looking at this saying, well, this is wrong. And it took time to, to sort of get there. So what did I do? I looked, I talked to them, I said, hmm, I think there's a career here. I think not only is there a career here, there's an opportunity. I could probably do this for a bunch of facilities. And I'll bet you I could sort of get this merry band of of other pharmacists and we could all sort of put our heads together and we could do this for a lot of facilities and really make a difference. So in fairly short order, believe it or not, I quit my job. My wife went out on maternity leave. My daughter was born and I started the company uh, with one little 100 bed nursing home in the middle of Queens, New York. And and launched basically everything from there. I took every part-time job and whatever uh, pharmacy I could to, to, to make ends meet while I sort of built the company. Now that was 32 years ago. And looking back, it worked. I, you know, I mean, you know, sort of that, that vision, you know, that, that, that I had in my head, that's where I'm sitting today. I've got this wonderful, unbelievable staff of 95 pharmacists who work for me these days. You know, and I, I say that I, it should be the reverse. I really work for them. I work every day to make sure that they have the tools to go out and do a good job. So I work with this unbelievable team, one better than the next. And we do this for over 400 facilities up and down the East Coast. And mostly, you can hear it in my voice. I'm just a guy having a good time. I love what I do. We're making a difference. I got to marry basically two passions that I had. I was always interested in business 
And I loved being a clinical pharmacist and I get to do both every single day. How lucky am I? That's awesome. I mean, there's, there's about eight things that you said that I want to follow up on, but I'm going to try to figure out where, where to go first. <laughs> well, first I'm going to say, I, I love your origin story about the starting of your consulting company, because that's one experience that I also had. I started my company July 1st and we had our first child July 26th. And if wow. there's one piece of advice I can definitively say will help you in your career, it's start a business at the most critical time of your life <laughs> because nothing drives you like a mouth to feed and you're going to succeed because of that. Now, obviously that doesn't happen to everybody, but I think that's interesting because it did drive me. I do look at that moment and, and I'm like, what, what was I thinking? Quit my yeah, job, no, start a business, have a kid in a yeah, month. Right. But it, but it drives you. Yeah. These become these now or never moments. Right. You know, you sort of look at and say, okay, let's go. And then it becomes sink or swim moments. You know, when you figure out, you know, how to not sink, maybe not swim so well, but not sink, you know, that that sense of accomplishment that you get from that and knowing that you're doing something good and it's worthwhile and you're building towards something, there's nothing like it. You know, uh, also making sure the mouths are fed, but there's nothing like that either. So I get you completely. Well, and I think that's it. Well, I think the, the take home message that I tell people that want to get into this line of work is you can't be afraid to take that step. Your situation can be far worse. It could be far better, but take the risk. You will, yeah. you'll figure out how to not, I like the way you put it, not sink. Yeah. Because that, that's ultimately the driver is, it's not desperation, but it's, you have no other choice. You've, you've committed to this path. So, all right. The second thing I want to follow up on, and you kind of touched on it being a hospital pharmacist and being a director of pharmacy, but what advice would you give young people maybe coming out of school or leaving an environment of pharmacy that they don't like? I know retail takes a lot of hits right now. What's the advice that you give somebody? How do you hire? If somebody comes to you and says, hey, Will, I want to work for you. All right. So, you know, it's really, really interesting. I, there's, there's a couple of things in there that you touch on, but I'm going to hit the last one that you just brought up on, on how do you hire? So I, it's really funny. The hiring process, there are certain things that you're looking for, and there are certain things that are unteachable. Like I can teach anybody the regulations. Look, we were all smart enough to get into and out of pharmacy school. And the entrance requirements these days are so incredibly high. The students that we take in right now, they are great. I mean, these are really, really bright, good, young professionals. I'm so proud of you know, what I'm seeing coming out of the pharmacy schools right now. But I will tell you, when it comes to hiring, uh, there's actually a couple of things that I'm looking for. You can't teach work ethic. You, you can't. So you look for somebody that generally wants, you know, it's just, just a doer. That's, you know, that, that's an absolute. Second, you can't teach somebody to be diplomatic. So in the course of interviewing somebody, very, you know, very generic questions about, you know, how, how they've handled various things. And, you know, it, it seems all very conversational, but I'm actually looking for how, how measured are people's responses? Because now remember what we're doing as consultant pharmacists. We're going to look at the chart. And we are going to look at that drug order and say, you know, we're going to politely tell the doctor in very professional terms that they're not quite as right as they could have been, <laughs> which is a very, very diplomatic way of telling them they were wrong. Right. <laughs> so, so, you know, there are levels of all of that. And, and, you know, what you want to do is you want to do this in the polite diplomatic measure because you could be wrong about them being wrong because they may be sitting on facts that you have no idea of because they're examining flesh and blood. 
and they may know that person for 20 years. So telling somebody in this very polite diplomatic way that you think they're not quite as right as they could have been, and then you getting the response, you've built that collegial relationship with them. And what's happening now is you're learning from them because they're going to come back and they're going to push back and say, no, I don't think so. And here's why. And now you build your knowledge base. And that, you know, that that benefits everybody. So you can't teach diplomacy skills. I can't teach work ethic. I can't teach somebody to love the clinical aspects of pharmacy. Now, remember, all pharmacists are not the same. And thank goodness. Right. We need people that really want to be behind the bench that love being behind the bench, that love, you know, they feel very productive and, you know, that's their day, you know, go in, do their work behind the bench and get those drugs out to people and they're good at it. And thank goodness. And they pick up on those things, you know, they pick out those prescriptions that that would have gone out wrong and they fix them. Thank goodness, right? There are other people that, like me, I I, I would be a terrible bench pharmacist, terrible. Because I just, you know, my mind is looking at the drugs and I'm thinking about all these other things and I'm not focusing the way a good bench pharmacist needs to. I need somebody that loves the clinical aspects the way I love the clinical aspects. That's going to help them be a good consultant pharmacist. Mm -hmm. But it's the last one. And this is actually as critical as the other three combined. Hire happy. Find people that want to be happy and hire them. You get a bunch of happy people together, you know what you're going to have? You're going to have a really happy group that loves what they do. You've hired people that are ethical. They have, uh, you know, they're conscientious. They have a work ethic. They're diplomatic by nature and they're happy. Oh, man, you can create quite a team there uh, with that. You take one unhappy person and you mix that into the same group. And what do you got? A bunch of unhappy people. I don't care how talented you are as a pharmacist. If you're not like I look for a natural smile. As I'm interviewing people, are you naturally happy? Or do you want to be happy? Because there are people that no matter what terrible thing is going on in their life, they're determined. They're going to make the best of it. Those are the kinds of people that I want to be around. And those, that's the kind of person I want to, I want to be for those other people yeah. to help them get there. Yeah. Well, I, I love that. I mean, basically what you're saying is it's, it's really about relationships. And when you are, you know, you mentioned dealing with the doctors and politely saying, you know, mm-hmm. Maybe you're not as right as you think you are. I've been there a few times. I decided in my career, though, that, that I wasn't going to be happy as a clinician or behind the bench. So I went into management. I figured that's the, <laughs> that's the thing that's going to make the one thing that I can handle. But this is a relationship business. I guess as a pharmacist, come across harsh or, or like you know it all. And the doctors are going to do the opposite. They're not, they're not going to accept your recommendations. They're going to pull back. And the, and the whole thing falls apart on the, on the consulting side. So I love what mm-hmm. you talk about as far as, as far as relationships. How do you continue to build? It's you doing it one-on-one, you hiring happy people. But now I know your, your business is spread across many states. And mm-hmm. so how do you make sure that you continue to grow, but keep that personal relationship, keep that personal touch? Boy, is there a lot there. (laughs) Uh, So a lot of it is about uh, the regional people that you put in place and making sure that you're meeting with them on a regular basis and you are there to support them and you're there at the critical meetings they need you to be a part of. They're meeting with a regional nurse. They're meeting with, uh, you know, they've got, uh, you know, uh, other big things coming up. You're either on there with them or involved in making sure that, uh, you know, they've been coached up to what they need to be coached up on, uh, or they've at least had a chance to talk these things through with you and say, okay, listen, this is what I'm planning to present. 
a lot of it is just, uh, you know, those team building and management skills that, that all sound like cliches, but they're not. You know, being there and uh, making sure that you're supporting the people that you've put in charge to make sure that, you know, the uh, uh, you know Southeast is being handled properly, that the Mid-Atlantic is being handled properly. I, and that to me, uh, that's a tremendous amount of fun. And it brings it back to another key aspect that all pharmacists need to realize while they're still in school, before they even graduate. In one way, shape or form, you will be a manager. You need to understand how to be a good boss, what you need to do. Because even if you are just a singular pharmacist working in a singular store in a small town, you've got a tech, you've got people, other people that are relying on you to give them guidance, to give them support, to help them be successful, to help them feel good about the work that they're doing. So every pharmacist should be thinking, even as they're coming through school, all right, I've worked for people. How was I treated? You know, how would I like to be treated? What do I need to do? Like if I was in that position and just be thinking it forward. So you take those very same skills that, that may be very micro on that level and you just apply them to the macro. So now I'm doing it just sort of on a larger scale. What I like to say right now is on any given day, I'm in the state that I need to be in in order to support the people that I need to support at that particular moment. Uh, so I, I kind of look at it that way. Yeah, hopefully that makes some sense to yeah. you, Tom. Hey, I'm going to go back to your comment about hiring happy people because I think the the downstream effect of that is if you're a happy person, people want to work with you. People are going to listen to you. That communication aspect, I used to say the same, something similar when hiring was, I'm not looking for the most brilliant 4.0 student that came out of pharmacy school. I'm looking for the pharmacist that can communicate with the cantankerous doctor that doesn't want to listen to the family member, to the nurse at the nurse's station. It's a challenge to be able to have the breadth to be likable and to be communicative to a broad range of people. And that's what really, to me, makes the difference in a consultant pharmacist. And it, and it speaks to everything you just said about their ability to manage situations, to be able to manage regional people, local people. And again, you know, the people that they deal with every day. I think that's, that's really important. Now, part of that, and I want to touch on this, is coming out of the pandemic, we're in an interesting place as a, as a consulting pharmacist group. We have the draw of doing things off-site. You know, a lot of people were able to do things off-site with electronic records. We're at an environment where most of our SNFs are understaffed and struggling. When I look at those two things, I have different opinions. Those are, those are two different topics, really. But the staffing one in particular, I just smell opportunity when I see an understaffed nursing facility. What else can I solve for you? What else can I do for you? And, and how can I turn that into being part of my business? How are you looking at these staffing issues and how do you work with your team to help solve problems for nursing homes? At the beginning of the pandemic, we looked at the fact that, uh, you know, there just was no staff. You know, staff was either out or they were quitting. And, uh, you know, uh, it was very quickly turning into a crisis of can we even get the meds administered? Yeah. The corollary to that was, what can we do to protect the nurses that are there from getting sick? Uh, and that meant, you know, trying to minimize ins and outs of rooms, you know, and, uh, you know, particularly with people that, that had already contracted COVID uh, and things like that. And what we did uh, basically right from the beginning was we went back to our database of recommendations and, you know, sort of coalesced. And I put together something uh, that we called 
eight actions prescribers can take right now to minimize med pass burden. And we sold it basically, and I really mean sell. You know, I spoke to every medical staff that, that, that would listen to me. I recorded things like this. You know, we did web broadcasts. Every group that I could get to listen, I'm like, look, here's eight different things that you can do right now that will minimize the nurses having to go in and out of rooms, minimize the med pass burden and streamline things so that the nurses can safely get the medications uh, administered uh, and appropriately get the medications administered. And what I would talk to the medical staff was about, look, we're going to write all these things in drug regimen review. I am begging you, beat us to the punch. Do it before we even get there. You've got to look at all those finger sticks that you're doing that basically, you know, you've already proven the point. You know exactly where they are. The hemoglobin A1C is telling you everything you need. You've got all the information. There's no reason to be sticking this person as often as you are. Uh, and we would bring them back to data that was developed out of ASCP on how long one single finger stick with coverage takes you know, and the number of minutes involved there, and you'd see the eyes get wide open. So we leverage information that came out of ASCP in some of the talks that we were doing. We talk about the excess blood pressures. We talk about people that had dry eyes in, you know, uh, back in December of 2017, and they're still on artificial tears. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it was all of these things, you know, that that, that we were looking at, and that had a big impact. I, the very interesting thing that that I really think came out of that was, by taking sort of a leadership role and trying to get out there, my phone rang more than ever with people saying, yeah, no, we really, really need some help. And you talk about you know, where the opportunities come from. The opportunity comes from getting out and doing the right thing and making sure that you're basically not saying, well, this is only for people that I serve. So many of the things that I put out there, Chad, were basically, I said, listen, you distribute this to anybody that, you, that, that needs it. We are all in this together. Yep. Now more than ever going through COVID, everything that I have is yours and your friends. It's a facility we don't work with. I don't care. Right. They've got a question they think I can answer. I'm never going to get that contract for whatever reason. I don't care. Just call me. I will help. As often happens, you know, the, the effort to try to do something good gets repaid a thousand times over. I've been shown kindnesses and, and uh, given opportunities that I never even imagined. And all I was trying to do was just do the right thing in the heat of the moment. And people recognize and remember that and have been very, very kind to me and all of us at Guardian. Yeah. Will, I, I want to circle back to what you talked about on, on MedPass. Several years ago, my pharmacy went over to the short cycle, multi-dose pouch. I worked for a company that owned their own nursing homes and owned the pharmacy. We saw the benefit on MedPass, a pretty significant benefit of a decrease in MedPass, 20, 25, 30% in some cases. And in a nursing shortage world, that, that was very important to us. And we had a lot of success with that. But I see some parts of the country, New York being one of them, that never have adopted short cycle pouch that's still kind of mostly unit dose blister card med pass. Have you had any experience on uh, with short cycle and helping with med pass? Yeah, absolutely seen it. You know, it's, it's blossoming more, like you said, New York is slow on the uptake. I've seen much more of it blossoming out uh, in Connecticut in uh, recent years in uh, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and then, you know, certainly as, you know, we, we head south. But New York, for whatever reason, a little bit slow on the uptake. I, I think that they're 
is generally uh, there's two things you're fighting. One is inertia and two, uh, you know, that that New York skepticism. All right, let, let's see if this really works before things start. You know, that that might be some of it. It's, it's hard to explain why things pick up in certain areas and, and don't pick up in others. So it is sort of a curious phenomenon. But I would agree with your assessment. That's exactly what we've seen. Do you think along those lines, I think we're seeing a lot of activity up here around technicians or I don't even know if we could call it CNAs, actually being part of the med pass process, which would lend itself to if we're going to pass meds, maybe we let them pass the solid oral tablets and capsules. Obviously, we're not going to turn a barcode. We're not going to turn an IV or an injection over to a technician level person, but we might turn some of these tasks over because we're really in a desperate situation. As it relates to that, from a pharmacist perspective, Will, can you point to anything that your pharmacists are doing today that they weren't doing prior to the pandemic that speaks to this stepping in? And, And one example I'll give, and I know that not a lot of people are doing this, but I don't think it's too far out in the future where the pharmacist might be responsible for some of the med monitoring assessments that used to belong to the nursing staff. And one example would be performing AIMS tests or some sort of monitoring for psychoactive medications or antipsychotics. I could see that being something that we ask pharmacists to do and maybe even create pathways for reimbursement for that. But what what kinds of things are you seeing spawn from this staffing crisis? So uh, two things on this. First, uh, getting nurses off the unit for education is almost impossible these days. So what we did was we created webinar bank on all of the topics uh, that, that we typically in-service the staff so that they can watch the webinars at, at their convenience. Second, you're exactly right. The move to have people that uh, have a lower level of licensure than, uh, say, an LPN pass meds uh, is uh, clearly afoot. And it's clearly due to the staffing shortage. And I, I want to stress this. This creates a tremendous need and opportunity for consultant pharmacists to do what we do as well as anybody else, which is educate. And we have to be there in this critical moment, making sure that if we're going to approve, say, CNAs to actually pass solid oral tablets and capsules, that they've gotten proper education on what it is to to do that properly. And we're in the prime position to do this. I mean, we've gotten more requests for MedPass observations in uh, in recent months uh, as the pandemic has uh, hopefully come to a close here. It's just more than ever. Let's put it that way. And with this move to have unlicensed people actually pass meds, that need for med pass observations and med pass teaching is only going to grow. And we're going to have to take the language and say, okay, we've got to we've got to take that same language that we're using on this and translate it for a different audience that doesn't have the uh, the advantage of having gone through nursing school. And how do we make sure that they understand the message that we're giving? and actually rework some of the uh, the teaching tools that we've put together for a uh, a new audience that's going to be caring for our frail elderly and our rehab patients. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, thought process is as we move over to those CNAs or whoever else passing meds, that's going to have mm-hmm. a, a bigger need for consultant pharmacists. How about transitional care? I, again, I know some parts of the country, many long-term care pharmacies are very good at, at doing a, a follow me home or discharge with meds. It seems like that's been kind of not happening in New York as, as rapidly, or, or, or maybe you can educate me that it, that it is, but it seems like that they're slow to adopt that. 
But with, with three hospitalizations being a hot topic for the last five years and, and that affecting the nursing home's reimbursement directly and also affecting their five-star ranking and, and five-star rating, I should say, as much help with that transition to care and keeping them out of the hospital, the, the, the better. I've seen long-term care pharmacies come alongside their nursing centers upon admission and really help them through that process to make sure that when it's time to discharge, they're discharging with meds and that long-term care pharmacy is continuing to stay with that patient up until that 30 or 90 days after discharge. First of all, do you? my question is, is have you seen that program? Do you have any advice for, for pharmacies as far as being able to adopt that program and start using that in, in your space, in your area? I've seen a lot of people uh, attempt to get these up and running. A lot of it has to do with staff turnover and personnel. Like you no sooner get uh, the social work team uh, and, and the discharge planners on the facility side educated on, on what they need to do in order to effectively use the program for that particular pharmacy, then those people are gone. Mm. Uh, and now you're, you know the program basically falls apart. Uh, and now they're they're starting up again. So I think that as the turnover situation begins to settle down, and it will, as that begins to settle down, this will gain steam because it has to. It's absolutely the right thing to do on every level to make sure that we're following that there are some uh, uh, checks on you know all right your refills are due. How come you got so many left? You know all those things that that really need to happen will definitely happen. But I think it's being hampered very much from my eyes, from, from my seat, by how much turnover has gone on at the facilities right now. There's also the other side of it, which is it makes our new admission drug regimen reviews for those short-term residents even that much more critical. You know, I talk to my staff about this all the time. We have one good shot with most of these people to identify that drug that is not necessary and get it out of the way, or identify that drug that's not being monitored properly and make sure that it is, or identify that drug that's being used in an improper dose based on age, weight, renal function, presence of side effects, and get that corrected. And if we don't get it done, and that person goes home on that, what amounts to an unnecessary drug, a drug that, and and we all know what happens here. The reality is, is that, and I've told any number of of audiences, of of professionals to non-professionals, the same line. There's only two things that that a drug can do if it's unnecessary. It can do basically nothing or it can hurt, but it can't help. Mm. There's nothing about it that can help. If you're lucky, it does nothing. In most cases, that unnecessary drug hurts. So, and that's, that's really where our role is. Somebody comes in, they're on that drug. The renal function is not going to support it. You've got to get that fixed right then, right there. Then they come in on that drug. That drug is no longer necessary. It should not have been sent with the discharge papers, but it somehow made it over from the hospital. A hospitalist wrote that order uh, and they sent it over to the nursing home. And uh, that drug that was intended to be stopped when they were discharged from the hospital doesn't get stopped. We've got to pick up those and we've got to get those done. Now, the sideline for the facilities is the facilities are all on board with this. They're passing fewer drugs. They've got fewer rehospitalizations due to medication misadventures. And primarily, those people coming in on those short-term stays are paying out of pocket. So we get a lot of support from administration when I'm talking about this with uh, groups of medical staffs. And my staff is talking about this at the medical staff meetings. It's one more, more way where, you know, it's one of these everybody wins situations. Tom, as you and I have talked about, 
you know how I love, you know, win, win, win situations. When everybody wins, we're all better off. That's right. All right. Let me get, let me ask one last question, but it's probably the broadest and biggest question. Probably the reason I took this role at ASCP. We've got 20 million more people coming in the next five years that will land in the over 65 age group. We have a flat number of skilled nursing home beds. It's been flat for 25 years. So, you know, if you look at the statistics, a person over the age of 65 puts their head down in a nursing home on a pillow. Four million of them do that a year. A lot of them are custodial. There's a good percentage of those that are transitional. If those numbers hold, that number instead of 4 million is going to be 6 million in 2030, which means by and large, these individuals that are in nursing homes today are going to be in assisted living and they're going to be in the community tomorrow. Those scenarios don't always have the, the pleasure of a consultant pharmacist. Where do you see consulting pharmacy going and following these vulnerable people that we could even argue today, there are people in the community that desperately need consultant pharmacist services, but they don't have access or there aren't paths to get there. But what do you see in the future as we head down this road? So, Chad, we could do about two hours on this topic. Right. right. <laughs> so, I told you it was, a, it was a big last question. Yeah, no, I mean, it's great. Get the five-minute so, version. <laughs> I, so the five-minute version basically goes like this. Uh, there will be an expansion in the number of long-term care beds because there's going to have to be. At some point, uh, there's going to be an overwhelming need. But as you point out, there is also going to be this overflow, which is going to end up in assisted living or in the community. Two things on that. One, we as a group uh, need to go back and say, look, we need to play a larger, better, more clinical role in the assisted living arena than we are. Now, sporadically in various states, we're doing better or worse job. Uh, sure. There needs to be something much more uniform across the country where we can go in and do the right thing by these people so that they are able to take all the advantage of assisted living, you know, all everything that assisted living has to offer and have the best quality of life and not end up transitioning to some uh, more intense level of care unnecessarily or much too soon, much sooner than they, they would have otherwise needed to be. That's number one. Number two, I am so excited about what AI is going to allow us to do uh, going forward uh, in terms of uh, looking at things for the community, in terms of the predictive ability of where we're going to have problems and then being able to work backwards, possibly with the insurers to say, all right, you allow us to leverage what we know as consultant pharmacists and all the, all of the, the lessons that we have learned in long-term care and to an extent in assisted living. And apply this uh, using AI into certain environments in uh, you know, certain subclasses of, uh, of patients that have high likelihood of rehospitalization. The amount of good that can come of this is amazing. And I'm telling you, I, it, it's something I, I wake up in the middle of the night thinking of various scenarios of how this would work out. I'm telling you, Chad, I've got a few. It's two hours worth of discussions, but I've got it. <laughs> we'll do it again. So, we'll do it again. We will do it again. <laughs> But so we can have an old, we could have a whole thing just on AI and the possibilities, not just for consultant pharmacists as we exist now, but what it means for us in the future. That's awesome. And I like that healthy attitude toward AI. There's so much yeah. doomsday discussions, yeah. but really these are tools and they can only amplify what we do, especially if we leverage them properly. So I love that attitude. It is refreshing to hear. There, there's a lot of anti 
technology, anti-AI out there. And I think it's just a, a false fear. But I got the more important question. You grew up in Long Island. Is it Mets yeah. or Yankees? What, 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 oh, where's your allegiance lie? I'm, I'm born and bred a Yankees fan. So uh, Yankees, uh, I, I can't even, I'm, I'm a Yankees fan so long, I don't even remember becoming a Yankees fan. I'm just uh, born that way. And uh, uh, so Yankees, uh, New York Giants uh, and the Yankees. Uh, that's uh, that's how it goes. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. We'll see how it goes. All right. And then Ra- Rangers as well. Is that how it went? Rangers yeah, over yeah, Islanders? Yeah. That, that, is, that is the typical. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's Yankees, Giants, Rangers, you know, uh, Mets, Jets, you know, kind of Islanders kind of a thing. That's uh, those those are sort of the way things are mostly divided. There's some crossover, but uh, but mostly that's the way things go around here. Well, Will, I want to thank you for being on today. We call these episodes pillars of the industry, and you are for sure a pillar of our industry. And it's 4th of July week. You're a great American. Appreciate you being generous with your time and, and helping share your story so that consultant pharmacists all over the country can can engage this profession and be better and do better. So thank you very much for being here. Hey, Chad, Tom, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's great talking to you guys. All right. Thanks, Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week on a new episode of Our Experience.